Evening, everyone. How are we doing? All right? Yeah? Good. Oh, gosh. It's all right. We've got communion coming. So um, when I finish talking, we're then going to take an opportunity to have communion and share together. And maybe some of the things that I talk about this evening will be an opportunity for you then to sort of bring things to God. And in fact, as a church, that's what we're about. We, we don't want to try and stand up here and look good and sound clever and important. What we want to do is help people engage with God, the living God. And by his spirit, Jesus is here with us. And actually, as I speak, I, I hope that you're able to listen, not just to kind of my words, but saying, God, what is it that you're talking to me about tonight? It won't be everything, but there might just be something that sort of, as you hear it, it sticks with you. So just be listening with those ears as well as we go on. And as Claire said, we're at the end of our series on shame that we've been going through this month. And I hope you found it helpful. Certainly the feedback has been that people have found it actually a really important topic, maybe something we don't really talk about very much in church, something it's maybe actually a bit hard to define, a bit intangible. So what I'm going to do, in case you're like new here or like brand new or whether you're online with us this evening and just wanting to kind of track with us, I'm going to do a super quick recap on what we've covered so far and then what I'm going to be looking at tonight. Okay, so I'm going to just show you a quote for shame. Uh, this is from an author and writer and someone who has studied shame for a long time, Brenny Brown. Uh, she's uh, an amazing speaker. And she says, this is shame, an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Now, if that sounds a bit confusing, it's basically you thinking, I'm rubbish. And really believing that. Um, and that's one of the things that shame is very inward looking. Um, the main thing is that we, what we think about ourselves and hold about ourselves to one another. And so over this topic, we've been looking at um, Genesis 3. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And Genesis chapter 3 is when it all goes wrong. It's described as the fall when Adam and Eve eat or the apple they shouldn't. And it all goes wrong. Sin comes into the world. And we've been exploring that and seeing how shame entered there and how it speaks so profoundly into how we deal with shame and what goes on. So the first week we looked at it, we looked at God asked a question, where are you? And he still asks that question today. He asks, where are we? You see, we, we naturally hide when we shame. There are things that are hidden in our lives that we don't want anyone to know about or anyone to see. Because if they really knew what we were really like, well, we would just be terrified. What would they think of us? The thing is that God knows that. God knows us and sees us. And the story with Adam and Eve, God goes after me. Ask this question, where are you? They're hiding. But we see that God pursues people in their place of shame. God doesn't wait for you to get it all sorted. And when you're ready, you come and find God. But we recognize God comes after you, even in the very place where you're hiding, the very worst place. That's what we saw as we started the series. We then saw last time, stop hiding, this idea that we naturally hide, the fig leaves, trying to hide and cover ourselves up when we've sinned, when we've messed up, where shame happens. And again, as we look at that, there's a, a beautiful part where God makes clothes. He covers Adam and Eve. Actually, he covers us and even understands our shame, understands that we get things wrong. And we were encouraged to come into the light this idea that what hid is hidden and secret, that's where shame thrives. But actually, when we bring it into the light, where we're vulnerable, 
whenever we talk about shame, we're vulnerable. And we've really realized that for us as a church, this is a vulnerable thing to talk about in public. Hey, you lot, you've all got shame. Come to the front and get some prayer. You know, it's, it can feel a bit awkward. Like, oh gosh, how I, am I really going to, what, right now you mean in church? And we want to create a safe place, a place again where ultimately you are doing business with God. You're saying, God, I acknowledge who I am, who you've made me to be. And I want to ask for your grace and your help. So that's where we were. And tonight, I'm really looking at the topic of living shame-free. Can we live without shame? Is that possible in the world that we live in? Is it possible to live shame-free? This weekend, um, I saw an article on the BBC News website of some photos of a super prison that's been started in El Salvador. There's been a huge spike of gun crime and violence. And so it was decided, why well, we're just going to round everyone up and... Here's just a couple of the photos of guys who are from gangs who have just been put together and, and sort of dealing with the problem. And to be honest, I was shocked when I saw it because I suppose as we've been thinking about shame, I thought, is this really going to change people's hearts? Incarceration, that's a huge topic that we're not going to go into. But lots of studies have been done on prisoners and how they handle shame and guilt. It's recognized, actually, that if someone is guilty, then they're far more likely to move forward and, and rehabilitate and not offend again. It's seen that when someone's guilty about an action, something they've done, then often they feel tension or remorse. They feel a sense that they want to put things right. They feel regret around what they've done. They confess and apologize. They want to try and repair and put things better. And so, therefore, it's likely that they'll move forward and maybe not rehabilitate again. Yet studies have shown many people in the prison population have a significant shame history. And that for people with shame, it's a very different outcome, where they're very likely to reoffend again. Shame, again, is directed towards ourselves. We kind of hold ourselves to, to account. We judge ourselves. Often we become very defensive around our actions. We can deny what we do. We blame others instead of taking responsibility. And often that leads to aggression. And in the prison system and judicial system, it's very common that reoffending will occur again. Just how shame has shaped people can make a difference. Now, depending on whether this is new to you or not, you might be thinking, to be honest, I don't have a shame problem. They've been going on about it in church for the last couple of weeks, and I don't know what they're going on about. I'm fine. Like, yeah, we all mess up and, you know, we just get along and you say sorry to God and it's fine, right? I don't actually have a shame problem. And I would love to agree with you, but I can't. And the reason is, actually, we all face shame. It's just that it's often hidden and hard to identify. It's, it's not an obvious thing. It's something that sometimes lands on us and presents in ways. If you were to be asked the very deepest, darkest secrets, the things you've done, the things that you're ashamed about, would you ever want anyone to know about it? Well, maybe that's a different question to ask. In fact, the phrase to be shameless is not seen as a good thing, to, to not care what people think. And actually, we're not talking about that. We recognize that even being shameless in itself is often acting out of shame. Actually, shame is everywhere. And if you're not sure about if you're into shame or not, then if you're on social media, you're in the shame game. Social media is predicated on that. I mean, I really, I'm really serious about it, is that it's not a neutral thing. Like, I'm, the, the huge dynamics that work around shame, showing your best self, hiding the worst stuff, 
the way our media works and everything. It's absolutely stacked about it. Do you feel quite happy when a politician you don't like is exposed? Shown to be a liar, fiddled their accounts or whatever. Are you secretly happy about that? Like, yeah, I never liked them anyway. You're shaming them. You can't stay neutral in this stuff. Shame is everywhere. And I think we just have to be very clear that actually society is based in many ways, operates a lot around shame and hiddenness. So that picture of those prisoners is actually a good picture for shame. It is a prison that you put yourself in and you keep yourself in. It's a shame prison that unfortunately you can't get out of, but no one else has put you there apart from it. Can we live shame-free lives? Is it possible? Can you sort of say, well, I, I've ticked that off, I'm all done now? I think, yes, it is, but no, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, the classic would is both and. I think we're called to live shame-free lives, but we also recognize that things will happen to us where we may feel shame, and we need to be able to deal with that and move on. So in a moment, I'm just going to invite my friend Tereni up, who's going to come and share with us and read to us from Isaiah 61. But I want to say to you right at the start that God is not part of the problem. He's part of the solution. And for many of us, especially if we've been Christians for a while, we actually feel that sometimes God hasn't helped us. We've prayed about stuff and prayers haven't been answered. We've asked God for help and stuff hasn't changed in our life. We've got problems that we're aware of and we've prayed about it and God seems to have gone quiet. We can often feel maybe false ideas around who God is and how God works that actually if God loved me and I'm being a good Christian, he would have sorted this out by now. So one of the things that we're really clear about and we teach on this in the wholeness course, we say God is not part of the problem. God is part of the solution. And we want you to help find that. Tereni's going to read us for us from Isaiah 61. And um, I'd love you to have a listen to it. We're not going to show it on the screen because I'd love, again, you just to be listening. It's a beautiful passage where it talks about what God wants to do. And there's a word that keeps cropping up in it. Uh, you'll hear it. It's called instead. You'll keep hearing instead of this, this. Instead of this, this. Be listening and again, as Tereni reads, Tereni, come and stand with me here. Round of applause for Tereni, by the way. Yes, Tereni. It, it might help you just to close your eyes as you listen. And again, listen with your hearts as Tereni reads us now. Isaiah. Yeah, that's good. Isaiah 61 from verses 1 to 7. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to, bring, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to, booster, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild, and, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will walk your vineyards and fields and you'll be called priests of the Lord, and you'll be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. 
Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And you will inherit a double portion in the land, in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tsurini. Jesus read that very passage at the start of his ministry. We read about that in the account of Luke's gospel in chapter 4, where Jesus unfurls the scroll. He reads it. He is saying that thing that Isaiah, the prophet from hundreds of years ago, was prophesying has come true today. And we're going to look at four people that Jesus meets really quickly. And we see that as he has an encounter with them, not only do things change and some of these will be very familiar to some of us. But actually, there's a shame thing going on that Jesus is dealing with shame. And I want to share these with you because I think they highlight what does it mean to live out from under shame? What does it mean for God to meet with us and transform us? And again, we believe that today, that God is still in the business of doing what he's done through Jesus. So the first one we're going to go to is uh, a story about the Gerasian demoniac. This was a man that we read in a number of accounts who was oppressed. He lived in tombs. He was ostracized from his community. He was supernaturally strong, and he was in a desperate way, lonely. He would cut himself and beat himself. Local people would try and bind him in chains, but they weren't strong enough. And Jesus goes and meets him, and the man falls to his feet and asked Jesus to help him. Jesus has mercy. And in fact, he was demonized. There were demons who were there, and Jesus sent them away. He was a victim. He was messed up. He didn't deserve it, but the dark powers were oppressing him. He was lonely and isolated and oppressed. Things were done to him. He hadn't chosen any of this, and yet this is what was happening to him. And actually, his behavior was a response to his pain. And as we just have that slide on, he meets with Jesus. He's delivered. And this happens when the village, the people, heard what was going on. They rushed out. They said when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. First of all, he was sitting at Jesus' feet. He was dressed and he was in his right mind. Suddenly there was order where there had been chaos. Suddenly he's present, able to sit and be with Jesus. And he has a whole mind. He's now free. Now this is a power encounter. This is something of the power of God that has met this man and set him free. But we read about that Isaiah passage where he says to proclaim freedom for the captives... And release from darkness the prisoners. That's the very thing that Jesus was doing with this man. And in doing so, his, his shame was lifted. He was no longer an outsider, cast out with his own problems. He was brought in. And yet, the story goes that he wants to go with Jesus. And it's a really sad bit, because Jesus says, no, you can't. In fact, this is what he says to the man. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus sends him out to be a minister, to have a voice to speak. Instead of being outside of community, he's sent into community to speak and testify of the love of God. The second one we're going to look at is the woman at the well. Laura spoke about 
her in John 4 last week brilliantly. And again, we've, we recognize that she's in a place of shame. She's um, experienced, she's an outcast. She's collecting water at the hottest time of the day. She's uh, cast out. She's a relational and maybe sexual failures and her marriages that have ended. She's, she's just hiding from people. She's probably shocked to see Jesus shunned by her community, ostracized and unseen. Maybe she was a victim and she's voiceless. And so she has this incredible conversation with Jesus that we heard last week. And this is then what happens as she goes off from the well. We'll just read this passage here. Come, she says to her town folk, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Just pause there. If you've got a shame problem, you don't say that. Certainly the kind of history, keep the slide up please, certainly the kind of history that she had. Something's happened, guys, that the shame has been lifted. Come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way towards him. Again, Laura spoke so well of it that as this conversation was going on with Jesus over the well, she was drinking living water. She was experiencing the life of the Spirit. Jesus as the anointed one, was binding up a broken heart. And in doing so, she was given a voice. Suddenly, she returns to her community again to speak and share, just like the other guy we looked at. She was bestowed a crown of beauty instead of the ashes of her past. Jesus has lifted her up, and now she's living shame-free. Does that mean her past is sort of just eradicated no everything that happened happened and yet somehow she's come out from under that and is living in a new way Jesus has lifted shame off her the next one I want to look at is Peter this is for all the Christians in the house and especially all your Christian leaders or anyone who basically messes up and this is a classic story so Peter is one of the disciples and what happens is that Peter denies that he knows Jesus during Jesus's trial So what happens is that um, whilst Jesus is being questioned, Peter is questioned and he denies it three times. And he fails. He fails as a follower of Jesus. He just completely lets it go. He disowns Jesus at his trial. In fact, he said, I didn't know anything about him. He was living in fear. He failed. In fact, he gave up and he goes back to his hometown and starts fishing again, kind of the pre-Jesus bit. And then Jesus meets them on the shore of the lake. They've been fishing all night. And now we'll have the slide. So Jesus talks to him. It's over a fire. And Jesus asks him a question a couple of times. And the third time he says this. Jesus says to Simon, son of John, this is Peter, do you love me? Now Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. When you deal with the painful stuff, it hurts. It might seem that Peter is offended. How dare you ask me if I love you? Of course you love it. But Jesus knows that there's pain there. (laughs) And he's just put his finger on it, being denied three times, asking him. When you deal with your shame, it will hurt. And don't think that God is hurting you. It's merely an acknowledgement that there is hurt there already. And so Peter is hurt by this, but Jesus says, feed my sheep. It's this thing that Peter is the rock that the church is built on. 
he is reinstated. Jesus forgives him and renews him. He commissions him to go and lead his church. And in fact, we read in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, who is it that stands up and testifies that Jesus is alive and Lord? It's Peter. In fact, throughout Acts, he even speaks to the very powers, the leaders in Jerusalem who had killed Jesus. Oh yeah, by the way, Jesus is alive and real and you killed him. Gone from a place of fear to being fearless, to being empowered. And again, in that Isaiah passage, he's become someone who proclaims the good news to the poor. That There's an incredible lifting. Do you hear it that Jesus has done? It's not just a, oh, I had a good chat with Jesus. Jesus has lifted shame. And now you're seeing an empowered life that's being lived, not under shame, but by the power of the Spirit. The final one, and one of my personal faves, is my man Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were bad dudes, and the reason was the Romans were ruling, but tax collectors were Jewish people but were now working for the Romans. So Zacchaeus is a traitor. He's disliked, he's turned his back on God's people, and he's working for the Romans. He's an individualist, he's career-minded, he's money-orientated, he's going for the wealth and the big bucks, personal gain and prosperity. And he's happily to be, do it by being dishonest and stealing and cheating. Now, one of the side effects, he's lonely and shunned by his community. But really, he lives out of the what's-in-it-for-me kind of way of life. Jesus walks into town, stops at a tree, looks up, and there's Zacchaeus, and he says, the best thing ever. I've got to have dinner with you tonight. I mean, how great is that? And so Zacchaeus comes down, and they have this chat. And this is what Zacchaeus says to Jesus. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. This was someone living under the shame of knowing that what he was doing was wrong, but not knowing how to get out of it. And suddenly, here, this public confession, this public repentance, not just in front of Jesus, but everyone hearing, there's a repairing going on. And suddenly, there's this kingdom generosity to the poor, to those who can't help themselves and those who need mercy. There's this profound turning around, not just helping Zacchaeus back into community, but this, this explosion of kingdom life. Shame has been lifted. And actually, Zacchaeus is a generous person wanting to care for those, give things away and repay. Suddenly he's been freed. He's not living from under shame anymore. Again, in the Isaiah passage, we read, you'll be priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. Zacchaeus becomes a minister of God, ministering in the very place to the very people he'd hurt, hurt and harmed. He was then ministering them and being generous to them. So as these different people have encountered Jesus, their shame has been lifted. Instead of shame, there's been a, a boldness, there's been um, generosity, there's been fearless, there's been a mercy. There's been a voice that's been given again to people who didn't have a voice. This isn't just sort of good psychology, this is the spirit of the sovereign Lord the anointing of God, that as Jesus met people, the anointing broke. The clouds that hang over people, the shame, the guilt, all the stuff. 
people might find it a bit odd, you coming to church. Maybe some of you are even a bit quiet about that. If people knew that I went to church, that would be a bit odd. Maybe you're here and very new to all this, and again, just kind of taking it all in. But for followers of Jesus, the, the church is the place of the life of God. And I suppose this series has been highlighting we have a shame issue in our world. We have it in the church. But actually the church is the solution to dealing with shame. If you can't deal with your shame here, where can you deal with it? If you can't deal with your shame with God's help and with God, then where else can you turn? And so our hope has been that as we've been sharing this with you, not to put pressure on you to say, you've got to sort yourself out. It's the invitation. That's what I've been asking you to listen. Can you hear the invitation that God, as he wants to meet with you in Jesus this evening, that as Jesus meets with you, he'll do what he's been doing all along with people, releasing forgiveness, healing, restoring you, lifting you up, binding your heart, setting captives free, but more than that, bestowing on you beauty instead of ashes. Being clothed in righteousness. Often shame feels a thing like we wear it, we carry it, and we need it taken off, and we need to help to receive the new thing that God has for us. You see, we play the shame game, God doesn't. We are used to it. We go around in it all the time, but for God, it's not a big deal. God wants us to live full lives, free lives, out from under shame, living in the light and the fullness. And yeah, it will go wrong again. And yeah, you might experience shame again. And well, we'll be here again. And we'll be meeting with Jesus and asking him to minister again and again. And you know what? You can go around that as many times as you need. How many times do you have to forgive people? As many times as you need. How many times do you need to be forgiven by God? As many times as you need. How much mercy do you need? as much as you need and it's here and it's here tonight and so we want to invite you and as I've just shared those different characters maybe one of them stands out to you like oh yeah that, that I think that could be me and Claire as she leads us in communion now will also just not just explain practically how we're doing but help you in your hearts to, to receive from God to give to God but also receive from God tonight so I'm going to pray and we'll just take a little pause and then Claire will come and lead us. Jesus, I thank you that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on you, that you are anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, that you bind up broken hearts and proclaim freedom to captives. You release people from darkness and you proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favour. You comfort us, you provide for us, you bestow on us beauty instead of ashes, oil instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Amen.